My name is Claire Press and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ah, are we starting? <laughs> we are seeing a kind of almost Zoolander-esque caricature of how excessive fashion can be. Our look shifting was like 16 to 20 hours a day. I would work like 450 hours in a month and making only $6. Creativity is one of the most powerful things that humans have. We underestimate the power of beauty and the power of humor. These are qualities that connect people and connectivity is a really potent thing right now. Don't point a finger, impart knowledge and information instead. Plus size modeling can go suck it. Um, <laughs> it's our job as designers to explore and discover beauty everywhere. So your voice is crucial and powerful in the supply chain. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. Oh, it's getting hot. My parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell them go away because everything is just fine. I hope you guys have listened to episode one, our interview with Laura Wells, which is titled Plastic Sucks. So this is the sequel, part two. It was Laura who told me about Dr. Jennifer Lavers, a marine scientist and seabirds expert. But Tim O'Rissonen, who we met in episode two, also got me thinking about birds. <laughs> Bird just tweeted outside the window. <laughs> the birds are into it too. So I called up Jennifer with this idea of writing a blog about her as a kind of extension to the plastic story. But as soon as she started talking, I was like, right, you are not getting away. People need to hear what you've got to say. She is just such a beautiful speaker and a beautiful human. And just recently, I watched the Ocean Change documentary Blue, which debuted at the Sydney Film Festival, and it is incredible. It's definitely going to be something that travels internationally. So watch out for that. Jennifer is one of the stars of Blue. But she's also been in the headlines recently for her work researching the marine debris problem in remote locations. We recorded this in May, just as her paper, co-written with Alexander Bond, was published with its findings that beaches on Henderson Island, which is basically in the middle of nowhere in the South Pacific, have some of the highest density of plastic debris ever reported. And I mean, no one lives there. It's crazy. Jennifer sees seabirds <laughs> that's like she sells seashells on the seashore very hard to say jennifer sees seabirds as sentinels of marine health but are we listening to what they have to tell us all this does actually have something to do with fashion i'm talking of course about the story of microplastic fibers there's a whole chapter on this in my wardrobe crisis book and it's a pretty complicated issue but jennifer does a really cool job of explaining it to the layperson or to people like me who didn't pay attention in science jennifer thank you so much for joining us hi this week's stories on your work have appeared everywhere i've read them in the atlantic the guardian the bbc are ordinary people finally listening to your message that the oceans need us to change our behaviour? Yes, uh, it's been refreshing in many senses to have Henderson's story kind of hit the big screen in in a really big way. That was really my motivation from moment one when I learned about Henderson, when I saw it in, in the flesh, was to uh, basically have Henderson Island become the poster child for this magical, mystical place that we all call away. We throw things away and often don't even give a moment's hesitation to think about where that place actually is. 
And so often it's remote offshore islands, you know, the bottom of the, the depths of the sea, from the Antarctic to the Arctic, and all the corners of the earth. I think one of the disappointing things, though, um, and this is a lesson learned for me out of this whole media experience with Henderson Island over the last couple of weeks, is that I didn't do a particularly good job of explaining that the key, the solution here really is to shut off the tap, even though I, I do remember myself saying that exact phrase probably a hundred times or more. That is the solution to this problem is really to prevent plastics from getting into the ocean in the first place. Because in the subsequent days and weeks since this all happened, my email inbox has been absolutely bombarded with some of the most genuine and generous offers of people all around the world, from Germany to Brazil, offering to fly, often at their own expense, to Henderson Island to clean it up. The problem is, is that Henderson Island, like so many far-flung remote islands, cannot be cleaned up. And the truth of the situation is, if all we ever do is clean up, that is all we will ever do. Gosh, it's such a, um, a hard thing to hear, isn't it? Because I think many of us relate to this feeling of powerlessness when it comes to the idea of switching it off. How do we do it? How do we kick our plastic addiction? Absolutely. And and by no means was I intending for people to feel you know so incredibly overwhelmed with the issue that they shifted from feeling motivated to demotivated. Um, and I'm also by no means meaning to be critical of cleanups or discourage people from participating in them in, in any shape or form. I think that cleanup activities uh, play an enormous role in education and outreach and, and simply making pe people feel engaged and feel like they're doing something. It doesn't always have to be the perfect solution, but it's something. And here in our towns and cities and kind of on nearshore islands, that's very realistic. Absolutely, let's throw everything at that. Cleaning up really does play a key role in preventing what is essentially one drink bottle from fragmenting and breaking up into thousands of microplastics. And we can talk more about microplastics later. But when you're talking about islands like Henderson Island and, and thousands of others where you're, you know, three, four, five thousand kilometers from the nearest city center, uh, cleaning those places up is just unrealistic. And really, we have to look at ourselves to change our behaviors, our habits, to not make any more excuses and to certainly not point the finger at one another, but really just accept full responsibility for your day to day habits and be willing to make whatever sacrifices that is, whatever it takes to ensure that the that Henderson Island is the only poster child that we have and that it, its situation doesn't get any worse. We're going to get into the detail about Henderson Island and what you found there a little later on. But I mentioned that people keep telling me about you. So Laura Wells, the model and marine biologist who appears in episode one of this series, and Timo Rissanen, who joins us in episode two, they both flagged your work with me. Timo is not a scientist. He teaches fashion at Parsons in New York. And you don't know each other, but he spoke on this podcast about his habit of looking at bird life when he wants to remind himself of the resilience of nature. Now, we're going to wade into the difficult story of plastic pollution later, but I wanted to start on a brighter note. How is nature resilient? Are you able to share a good news story, perhaps, about bird life? 
Well, that that is a tough one for me. <laughs> I'm perhaps the wrong person to ask, but but I'll, I'll I'll do my best. I think we all have a role in this world, and unfortunately, my role is to kind of document species and spaces at their worst because. That is unfortunately what plastic waste does to species and spaces. It, it damages them. And so um, I don't really get to see places that are particularly beautiful or pristine. I mean, Henderson is stunning and, and Lord Howe Island and some of the other locations that I work on are stunning. But of course, when you get down on your hands and knees and look on the beach or you look a little bit closer, the plastic is always there. And the same can be said for the bird life. On, you know, where, regardless of where I go, is that the birds are there, but often struggling with plastic-related issues, and their populations are often declining or not not as big as they should be as a result of of that and many other pressures that that we put on them. But there is evidence elsewhere in in the wild world that there is resilience and that some species are able to adjust and change. I think. Plastics is certainly one of those ones that we need to be particularly mindful of as a society, and this is a good lesson, is the rate at which we are putting plastics out into their environment, the environment of birds and turtles and whales and everything else, is is so rapid, it's accumulating so quickly that I don't know that there's a whole lot of capacity for wildlife to really kind of adjust. They can't just simply learn that our waste is waste um, we need to learn that waste is is actually a resource that this plastic is made out of petrochemicals and that we treat that as a as a non-renewable resource and we should you know perhaps behave a little bit more accordingly it can be such a, a difficult story can't it I mean I, I was going to ask you later on but I feel I should ask you now how do you stay how do you not let this stuff get on top of you how do you stay resilient with great difficulty. <laughs> yeah. That is that is the straightforward answer to the question. With with immense difficulty. And I will I'm the first to admit that often it it I don't stay on top of it. Often it's totally on top of me and I'm at the mercy of of the things that I'm seeing and the the sad role that I play in the world. And and it's even harder when, you know, I, I realize that I am forever the bearer of bad news and someone will you know very kindly point that out to me and and it's it's quite hard to know that and then constantly have people say oh yes but you are the bearer of bad news why do you have to be this person and and someone has to be that person but those who are often uh, held in regard in society are those who realize that that battle was often all but lost and that the outcome was pretty much decided and yet because of their principles because they believed in something so strongly they absolutely refused to wave the white flag wow for me that's that's who i am i i realize that so many of these so-called solutions that are being put forward are imperfect they're not happening fast enough Um, So, you know, many individuals in our society are just perpetually making excuses. There's all these kinds of things that are happening. You know, for me, it's just not happening quick enough and in the right ways. But that doesn't mean that I wave the white flag. It does mean that I continue to fight on. 
gosh. I mean, it's you're an inspiring person just in terms of the work you do, but also in terms of how much you care about this and how much you want to shift conversations and make change. Where does it come from? Tell me a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up and and when did you become fascinated by nature and when did you decide to become a scientist? I honestly don't know where it comes from because I am a total black sheep in my family. I come from a household that was the total opposite of green and, oh, and really? environmental. Oh, yes. I I was the one that creeped out my siblings and in particularly my parents because um, from probably the day I was born, I was obsessed with anything to do with nature. Um, I, you brought I home kept... the slugs. Were you that one? <laughs> I don't know how you guessed that, but I wasn't, I was just about to say, not only did I have ant farms, but I actually kept slugs. And I have this hilarious story of how I decided that I loved these slugs that used to crawl out from the lily of the valley in the backyard in the mornings when it was, when it was a bit of dew on the ground. And my mother hated it. And I would take her mason jars, her prized possession mason jars, and take a hammer and a nail and puncture holes in the lid of the jars, rendering them useless, which she just thought was brilliant. And I would stuff my slugs inside these jars. And I wasn't allowed to use the jars, nor was I allowed to keep slugs, which meant I obviously had to hide them under my bed. I've got a vision of you now. I've got this little vision of you as this little kid with your slug jar. (laughs) And if you know anything about slugs, it's that they can fit themselves through any possible hole. And so, of course, the slugs, as soon as they were warm and dark under the bed, they went, brilliant, we're out of here, and they (laughs) escaped. And my mother would come along days or weeks later, and she would be vacuuming, and she would, you know, push the vacuum underneath the bed, and up up the vacuum would go, clink, 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 (laughs) clink. And she would think, what in the world is this? And she would reach under the bed, and there would be this slimed out, empty jar, and she would realize that my slugs had once again escaped. And she would be sitting there shaking her fist at me, going, how did I end up with this weird child? So where was this weird uh, child growing up? Where did you where did you live? I don't, again, I don't know how it happened that I became a marine biologist, considering that I grew up 18 hours from the nearest bit of marine habitat. So I grew up in the central prairies of northern Canada, probably as far removed from the ocean as you could ever be. The first time I saw the ocean, I was 21. I was about, I was going to say to you, do you remember when you first saw it? So you were actually an adult when you first came into contact with the sea. I do. I I flew across the east coast of Canada to a small island called Newfoundland. And I went on a humpback whale watching tour. And this is really embarrassing, quite a funny story as well, because I'm not just a marine biologist, but I specifically work on birds. And on this whale watching tour, you could go and see the seabirds this particular species called puffins. They're quite curious little birds. They look of like course, clowns. Puffins. And they're bright, brightly colored. Yes, I mean, yes, everyone knows wonderful. their faces, great faces. Right. So I thought this is really embarrassing for a bird researcher and, and nobody's listening to this, this, right? You know, this is between <laughs> you and I. I shan't tell so, anyone. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. So I went on this, this whale tour and I thought, excellent, I'm going to get to see a puffin. And about an hour in, I'm thinking, where are all these puffins? And so I said to the captain of the ship, where are all these puffins? And he said, you've got to be kidding, right? There, you know, there's one there and there's one there. And I said, where? And he said, right there. And I said, that tiny little thing. And he said, well, yes, how big did you think they are? <laughs> and I thought they were about the size of a penguin. And it turns out they're about the size of your fist. 
It's quite shameful that a bird biologist had absolutely no idea. So there you go. (laughs) These days, of course, you know very much more. You know all there is to know about seabirds. I wonder if you might just tell us a little bit about about seabirds and about your fascination with them. You're a marine biologist, but you actually spend most of your working life on land. Indeed. And so seabirds have really become what I call my eyes and my ears. So when we want to study the ocean, there are actually a couple of ways of going about it. And I've gotten a bit, I suppose, crafty, or some might argue maybe a bit lazy, I don't know. So when one wants to study the ocean, there are actually a couple of ways of going about it. And and some may say that there's uh, a bit of a, a crafty way of going about it. And others may argue that perhaps it's a little bit of a lazy way. But but either way, you can either go out on the ocean to study the ocean. And, and by that, I mean, you know, hiring, chartering a vessel and actually going out into the big blue and being part of it. Or you can leave the hard labor, the dirty work, up to some of the marine creatures that are much more at home in the ocean. And you can just be a land lover like me, in a sense, and basically hang out in their breeding colonies and wait for them to come back. And so that's essentially what I do. Um, I'm a marine biologist, but I don't actually spend all that much time out on the open ocean. I go to the islands where these wild species breed And I monitor them over time. And what we know is that if, in this case, a seabird, if the population is doing really well, they're thriving, they're breeding successfully, the adults are, their survival rates are really excellent, they're bringing back the types of prey that we expect them to to be feeding on, then all is well and good in the ocean. And we can make some fairly strong conclusions about, you know, the the ocean is, is doing well as well. However, If those bird populations are showing some worrying signs, you know, breeding success drops down really low or the bird colonies start to abandon or anything is a bit funny on the scene, then obviously that tells us that out there in the ocean where those birds are collecting their prey, there's something going on. And so those birds, again, are, are, they're my eyes, they're my ears, they're, they're telling me what's going on. And we call them the marine version of the canary in the coal mine. And they have a lot to say. And, and, and I view myself a little bit like their storyteller. I'm lending my voice to the story that it is that the birds have to tell us about the health of the oceans. When we chatted before the podcast, you told me a little bit about this idea of them as being sentinels and also that historically birds were telling stories and communicating to mankind, perhaps telling fishermen where the fish live. I wonder if you might tell us a little bit more about about that ability of birds to give us information. Absolutely. So, you know, for, for centuries in the ragged books, it's well known that fishermen off the coast of Newfoundland on the Grand Banks or artisanal fishermen off the coast of Mexico would basically scan the horizon and look for large flocks of seabirds and that's what told them that there must be a shoal of fish around and that's the direction that they would head out in to go in and find their food for the day. And so for centuries, we've been relying on seabirds to basically be our eyes and our ears and to tell us where's a good spot to go and, and where the ocean is thriving. And and in some senses, what we're doing nowadays is not really all that different I always reflect back on this this story that I've been told about Australian Indigenous communities, particularly here in Tasmania, that they used to look upon the enormous flocks 
of short-tailed shearwaters or what we call mutton birds here in Tasmania that were so large and so thick, these flocks of birds, that they would blacken the sky. The indigenous communities called them a living wind and they would just gaze upon them and reflect on this kind of living wind that would go past the shorelines. And so birds have always kind of communicated with us about the health of the ecosystem for, you know, probably for as long as we can remember. You mentioned a different breed, am I saying that correctly, but a different kind of sheer water. I don't really understand all the taxonomy of birds, but perhaps you could um, share a little bit about the work that you've done with the flesh-footed shearwater, am I right? <laughs> I need an education. That's perfect. So here in Tasmania, we have a species called the short-tailed shearwater, which ironically does not actually have a short tail. And on Lord Howe Island, which is smack in the middle of the Tasman Sea between Sydney and Auckland, that's where I spend most of my time doing research, we have the flesh-footed shearwater, which is about twice as big and, as the name suggests, has a very fleshy or pink-coloured feet and they they play very kind of similar ecological roles there at the top of the marine food web and they they dig burrows into the ground both species do and in particular on lord howe island uh, the flesh-footed shearwater unfortunately is not really doing particularly well we've been worried about their population there for some time and that's really been one of the, the focal points of the study is trying to figure out what pressures they're facing of those pressures, which ones are the dominant ones, and what can we as human society do about it, or and, and even what can we learn from the mistakes that we've made so that other seabird species don't suffer these same pressures and the same fate. There's some harrowing TV footage from the project that you're working on of a dead bird's stomach being sliced open to reveal 175 pieces of plastic, including a toy doll's arm. I mean, it, it beggars belief. I, I could hardly watch it. That, according to the, the news story that went with this footage, which I will share in the show notes to this show, that's 5 to 8% of its body weight in plastic in its stomach. Jennifer, can you tell us some more about the scale of what you see there and continue to see elsewhere? Indeed. So Australia kind of has one of those, those record-holding statements that you don't really have a lot of pride in, and that is that we are home to the species that is kind of at the most risk and being the most heavily impacted by plastics. And that is the flesh-footed shearwater that breeds on Lord Howe Island, not just on Lord Howe Island, but that is the single largest population in the world. And that video that you mentioned and that you'll share with listeners, it is really hard to watch, but I think it's something that we all need to see. It, it's something to kind of know about plastics and maybe to see some plastic on the beach and shake your head and think oh that shouldn't be there how frustrating and and even to pick it up and put it in the rubbish bin it's something else entirely to watch bottle caps balloon clips everyday consumer items like pin lids and and clothes pegs be removed from the stomachs of seabirds innocent seabirds often baby seabirds as well. So the video that you're going to see is of a bird that is less than three months old. That, you know, these are totally innocent creatures that play no part in what we're doing to the ocean. And so what I encourage people to do when they see 
these videos, hear those statistics, or you've heard about the story of Henderson Island and you've seen some of the photos that I've put out to the media, is to try and focus on what we dare to call single-use or disposable plastics. Now, I argue that no piece of plastic should ever be labeled either of those things, something that's made of a non-renewable petrochemical-based resource that is essentially chemically designed to last forever should never be called single-use or disposable. And we need to totally transform our language here, not just our relationship with plastic, but also change our language. But to try and see yourself in the stomach of that bird, that's a very weird thing to say, but also on that on Henderson Island's beaches and think, what of those items do I use in my everyday life that I as an individual can take responsible for, that I can seek out biodegradable, sustainable alternatives, non-plastic alternatives, not pointing the finger at anyone else that I'm fully willing to take on board the responsibility to replace those items with something else. That's my contribution. And so, you know, be brave. Not just that we can all do it, we have to. Look at Henderson Island. Look at the flesh-footed shearwater on Lord Howe Island with two and 300 pieces of plastic coming out of the stomachs of almost every single bird on that island. We have to. We don't have a choice. Jennifer, where does this plastic come from? It comes from each and every one of us. Unfortunately, I know that's going to be really hard for some listeners to hear and even to accept. Um uh, every study around the globe and, and Henderson and Lord Howe Island are, are definitely no exceptions has really highlighted the fact that plastic comes from all individuals and all possible sources that you can imagine. So on Henderson, we were able to look at the country of manufacture or what we, we assume is the potential origin of some of the items where the, the brand or the manufacturer was still legible. Right. Item. And what we, what we found was that the list was enormous. It was everything from the UK to the US and, and everything in between. And the lesson there was that no one got a free pass. We all had a hand in creating this mess. We therefore all have an equal hand in, in cleaning it up and pointing fingers and saying this person did more or this person did less doesn't really get us anywhere. What matters is that if your country or your in, you as an individual did less, you're obviously doing something right. Help impart that knowledge on the country or the individual who doesn't quite understand. Don't point a finger, impart knowledge and information instead. Talking of knowledge and information, I wonder if you could explain exactly what happens to plastic when it's in the ocean. So one of the, the phrases to, to steal a brilliant phrase from a, an equally brilliant colleague of mine who works for an agency called Tangaroa Blue, which does fabulous things here in Australia. Is and, it Heidi Taylor? Indeed. She's ah, a superstar. Great. So H Heidi is full of genius quotes. And, and to quote one of her, her genius moments, Heidi always says, plastic doesn't break down, it breaks up. And what she means by that is that by saying something breaks down, it kind of suggests that it's degrading or biodegrading and may one day go away. And when it comes to plastic, that is absolutely not the case. That's never going to happen. And so what's really happening with plastic is it's breaking up. 
And when we start to transform our language, when we stop calling things disposable and single use and we start saying something is breaking up rather than breaking down, it seems like semantics. It seems like small little things that I shouldn't be arguing or nitpicking about. And and I'm really not. But I think if you want to embrace this as a full-on challenge, well, then take take the challenge of changing your language as well. And, and if you don't care, well, then you don't care. But but I choose to say break up for, for a very good reason, and that is because that is exactly what is happening in the marine environment. So whether you're a, a laundry basket, a shampoo bottle, or a bottle cap that makes it out into the ocean, the combination of exposure to UV, wind, wave, cold, heat, salt, humidity, everything is over time going to make that item very brittle and it is going to break up. And so one drink bottle, one bottle cap becomes not one piece, but potentially thousands or even tens of thousands of much smaller pieces when it breaks up. And first it goes from what we call macro, which is, you know, items about five millimeters in size or bigger now millimeters is still very small so definitely a bottle cap is something we would call macro but even items smaller than that still fall on that macro category microplastics and this is a big one for people to grasp is the official definition global definition is one to five millimeters which if you have a look on a ruler is actually really small about the size of your pinky nail at the biggest. So that's a microplastic and you can imagine that a bottle is going to become many, many hundreds of microplastics given enough time to break up in the ocean if it's, you know, being pulverized on a reef or on a shoreline or just in the waves. And then the next scale from that is what we call nanoplastics. Those are plastics like microbead scrubbers that you find in cosmetic cleanses dreadful things the devil yes indeed and not only do we directly manufacture nanoplastics in the form of things like microbead scrubbers but of course macroplastics become micro and micros become nano and from there they can even become smaller but the big takeaway message there is that the plastics don't go away in fact every single piece of plastic ever made still exists somewhere in the world Potentially, it has just broken up into such a small piece, you cannot any longer see it with the naked eye, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And the scariest thing for me as a marine biologist, what it does mean, this is one of my sayings, is as we've allowed plastic to enter the marine environment and allowed it to break up and to fragment, and in addition to that, have started to manufacture plastic in micro and nano form, we have essentially opened the floodgates, all of those plastics that are micro and nano and beyond are bite-sized. So perhaps you can tell us a little bit about what it means to us when these tiny pieces of plastic are eaten and enter the food chain. Indeed. Once upon a time, you know, the early research papers that came out on plastic ingestion were largely on large marine creatures 
that was largely for two reasons. One was because the items that we had put in the ocean were relatively, that was a new thing that was happening. We'd only just started mass manufacturing plastics. And so not enough time had really occurred for plastic to fragment up into these teeny tiny little pieces. And so that's what you were finding in animals was big pieces in big animals because you had to be a big animal in order to ingest an entire toothbrush, for example. Mm. But increasingly what we're finding And part of it is because we're looking a lot harder now, but also part of it is because all of that plastic in the ocean has had decades to fragment up into little pieces and also because we're manufacturing plastic in such tiny pieces, is that plastics are now infiltrating almost every single level of the marine food web because they are essentially bite-sized. So we now have have records of plastic in krill and in filter feeders like sea cucumbers and clams and mussels. Um, One of the statistics for marine fishes is at at a minimum 25% of the marine fish species of the globe uh, contain ingested plastic. And, And one of the things that, one of the stumbling blocks there, that was another lesson for me was I gave a seminar one time and someone said to me at the end, well, I mean, it's terrible that fish is eating, a fish is eating plastic but I would never eat the fish's stomach. You know, when I, when I buy a fish whole from the market, the first thing I do is gut it. So why do, you know, ultimately why do I care if a fish eats plastic? It's not really going to hurt me as me or my family. And I had to say, okay, hang on. That is where science communication has, has fallen over and allow me a moment to clarify. The reason why we all need to care that fish and most other levels of the marine food web are now consuming plastic and and being exposed to plastic is because plastic inherently is toxic. It contains a diverse array of chemicals used in the manufacturing process, everything from dyes and fragrances to um, chemicals that stop it from being flammable to other chemicals that make it to be, you know, flexible or rigid or longer, longer lasting or whatever, a whole suite of chemicals, the vast majority of which we have no idea whether or not they're actually safe for the marine environment, or for human health. And then that's what's actually embedded in the plastic itself. In addition to that, as plastic floats around in the ocean, it acts like a magnet or a sponge, and it accumulates toxins, contaminants that are floating in the ocean in dilute concentrations, and it literally sucks those contaminants onto its surface of that plastic particle. And what they've shown, other researchers around the world have shown, is that you only have to take a brand new piece of plastic and submerge it in seawater for a matter of weeks, and the surface of that plastic becomes so remarkably contaminated with chemicals, it's orders of magnitude more contaminated in weeks. Eesh. I didn't know that. My face, I wish you could see my face, which is peeled back in disgust. It's it's it, the rate at which this is all happening. It's very, very rapid. And so... That, that person who raised their hand at the end of my seminar and said, so what if a fish eats plastic? I, I'd pull the guts out of that fish and I would never eat its intestines. So like, you know, why should I care? Well, that's why you should care because it doesn't matter if you got that animal. What matters is that plastic was there in the first place. As soon as an animal ingests plastic, we now have enough data from enough species around the world that shows if an animal consumes plastic, some, potentially all, of the chemicals from that plastic given enough time are leached 
from that plastic into that animal's bloodstream and into its tissues. So if you then go and eat that fish's muscle, the filet, you are exposing yourself to the chemicals that came from the plastic that that animal ate. So you should definitely care. Jennifer, I want to pull this back to clothes because, as you know, wardrobe crisis is broadly about clothes and fashion, although we know that it bleeds into all sorts of places from economics and politics to art and science. But we're talking about microplastics. And at the moment, we're in the middle of a moment where this conversation around shedded microfibers from polyester clothing is actually reaching more ears. It feels like it's suddenly big news and before it was kind of swept away. How do you feel about this and what can you tell us about the issue of microplastics coming off clothing in the wash? Increasingly, the data from from brilliant researchers like Mark Brown is showing that these fibers from simple act of washing our clothes is really accounting for a much more significant proportion of kind of the waste or litter stream numerically than than we ever considered previously and the the trick there is that almost certainly we are at present underestimating the the risk that this poses to wildlife because the same can also be said for micro and especially nanoplastics. So nanoplastics are kind of like this million-dollar question right now. Nobody really knows what nanoplastics are or are not doing to our oceans and to the wildlife that inhabit those waters because nanoplastics function on such a small level that quantifying them, detecting them in the first place, and then trying to figure out what it is that they may or may not be doing is a monumental task. The same can be said for fibers. You're talking about items that are on such a small scale that trying to figure out where they're going, what species are taking them up, how they're moving through that animal's digestive tract, whether or not they're causing any hazards what kind of chemicals are absorbing onto the surfaces or leaching from them when they're consumed. All of those questions are initially very difficult to answer. The difficulty is magnified when you're talking about items that are so so small you can barely see them and manipulating them. Testing what's on the surface of a fiber is so hard when the surface of that fiber is you know, a tenth of a millimeter in width. So we are undoubtedly as underestimating what this really means for our oceans. And what that means is we, with, with all things, climate, plastics, sea level rise, ocean acidification, with, with all things environmental, we should always adopt the precautionary principle that says if there is evidence from other similar areas and logic says this is the road that we're likely heading down, we should be cautious. We should always adopt the cautious approach rather than going full steam ahead. And I feel like right now we're all just going full steam ahead. Yeah, yeah. Do you ever think personally about the potential environmental impacts of what's in your own wardrobe? Do you wear polyester fleeces? Absolutely not. So I have a couple of items that I purchased. I have one polyester fleece that I purchased back when I lived in Canada and I haven't lived in Canada for 10 years and it's one of those things where I wash it at an absolute premium so um, that's probably going to disgust some of your listeners but I probably (laughs) only wash it about once a year 
with with very very good reason yeah i don't purchase new items that don't meet my stringent expectations and the existing items that i have uh, i use with great care and also great awareness laura wells said something to me that made me smile during her interview we were talking about the importance of clothes and she said the fish don't care what i look like and yet, I love it. It's cute, right? But clothes are not only about adornment, they're also about function. You mentioned having one fleece from your days past. But what do you wear in the field? And in what ways do your clothes as part of your kit help or hinder your work? So I just ordered for the first time T-shirts that have my logo and on the back I wanted the T-shirts to basically be a walking billboard of facts and figures about seabirds in the house of the ocean with a really strong focus on plastics. So the back of the T-shirt says, you know, 5.25 trillion pieces of plastic currently floating in the surface layer so that when you're standing at the grocery store at the ATM, the person waiting in line behind you has no choice but to be learning about the ocean And I went to great lengths and also great expense to ensure that those T-shirts were locally sourced, organic cotton, you know, ticked all of the relevant boxes so that the environmental footprint of them was, you know, absolutely as minimal as I could make it. Fantastic. And, you know, with all decisions that I make, there is an initial investment to find that company, that brand that lives up to my expectations. But then... That initial investment pays off from then onwards. And so, you know, that's that's one of the arguments I always make with making the individual decisions on how to replace, you know, these so-called disposable items in your life. One of the best examples I always give is for years, I've been brushing my teeth with a toothbrush made out of bamboo. Have you? I need one. And so everyone says to me, oh my goodness, well, where in the world would you get that? It must be so difficult to find them. You know, well, oh, well, if it's difficult, I'm not willing to do it. Well, well, that attitude, first of all, that attitude needs to stop here fast and now. And second of all, it wasn't difficult. And as soon as I found that company that that provided the, the bamboo toothbrush locally at the price that I wanted, um, then I was set. And so there was an initial investment, but but that was the commitment that I was willing to make because I know that on Henderson Island, there were more toothbrushes washed up on Henderson Island than the entire city of Launceston would use in a year. Gosh, there's so yeah. many. Um, I've never really considered toothbrushes, although I do. I did consider how to dispose of them more responsibly and look up a drop-off point in Sydney where you can dispose of dental stuff. But yeah, we will definitely share some info about the bamboo toothbrushes in the notes to this show. It just shows that there are so many areas we can make small changes. It's it's wonderful. So I, my iPhone case is made out of bamboo. There's a wonderful um, provider. And I, I wrote to them and said, I want one of your cases, but don't ship it to me in plastic. And so they shipped it to me all in paper, which yes. is brilliant. <laughs> And one of the one of the really amazing ones was I was down at Circular Quay in Sydney a few years ago, which was my first time ever at Circular Quay, and I was at the local market there, and one of the sellers at the local market was selling sunglasses where the entire frame of the sunglasses is made from bamboo, multiple styles, shapes, and colors. And I thought, how brilliant. That is not something I had ever thought of. And so I honestly feel like we are getting to a stage in our society where there is an alternative for just about everything. And if there isn't, then there's certainly a market. You just have to be willing to make the commitment to look. I want to move on now to something 
of a rather different tone, but which really excited me when you told me about this the other day, Jennifer. We were talking about ways to communicate these messages. And you just highlighted one with your fabulous T-shirts and the idea of people standing behind you at the supermarket and being forced to read it, which I love. But I want to talk a little bit about the work of an artist by the name of Marina Debris <laughs> and her Trashin project. What can you tell us about this idea of art and fashion being a way to communicate some of these messages with particular reference to your friend Marina? Well, you know, there's this saying in this world that says, surround yourself with good people. And I have adopted that wholeheartedly. I think that Marina, Miss Marina Debris, um, with most inspiring and creative name, is just one of those absolute legends in life that you meet. And she does the most creative, beautiful, inspiring, and at the same time, grotesque work. So she lives half of her year in Sydney and half of her year in Los Angeles, creating what we call trashion. So it's fashion. She does proper fashion runway shows, but all of her garments are made out of trash that has washed up on the beaches no exception. She even has one gown where the bustier part at the top of the gown is made out of a diaper, a, a, a nappy, if you can believe it, that washed up, I believe, on a beach in Sydney of all things. And this model has to strut her stuff in a remarkable way, wearing a nappy down the runway. And I've seen it and it's amazing. And it's a trick of the eye, though, isn't it? Because you look and you think, how gorgeous, how interesting. There's a dress that I looked up. Um, I've never seen it in the flesh, so to speak, but a picture of a video footage of this girl in a dress, which is sort of diaphanous, floaty, organza-looking layers of white froth. But when you look up close, it is, of course, semi-disintegrating, nasty old plastic bags that the artist doesn't wash them. She doesn't fix them up. She lets them live their grimness, if you like. It's interesting. Absolutely. And I, and I love it. And, and so one of the things that I've embraced as an individual, and, and once again, I'm embracing this aspect of being a black sheep. So I was a black sheep growing up and I'm, I find, girl. <laughs> I find that I'm, I'm a black sheep as a scientist as well. So I, I tend to walk a bit of a fine line of, of doing core pure science, but at the same time, really doing these quite weird and often wacky things to translate the science into all different types of types of languages or media that expose that science to the broadest possible audience and and not everyone is supportive of that or or thinks that a scientist should fill that role i personally think we all should be doing as much as possible to educate each other but um not everyone shares that same vision but you know, to each their own and I'm going to tread my own path and this is my path. And and mine is really, I have a science brain. I don't have a creative brain. And so I partner with those who can fill that gap and help. I hopefully can help them and they hopefully can help me translate the science that so urgently needs to get out to all corners of the public. Because what I've found in, in my dialogue with people is that I'm still blown away that even in this day and age with plastics plastered all over TV and print media and inside out and backwards, and I feel like I've said all of my catchphrases a thousand times over, every now and then, actually not all that infrequently, quite often, I'll bump into someone who'll say, plastic what? I had no idea. And I think, 
how did that happen? You know, how did I miss you? How did we not connect on some level? And if we didn't connect, then I've failed you in some way. And I've obviously got to get more creative and I'm not creative. So I'm going to find people who are. And that's where people like Marina Debris and so many others come in and try to show what is essentially a very sad and often very graphic issue in less sad, less graphic sometimes very sad, very graphic ways, so that it caters to all possible audiences, so that everyone is exposed to the issue of marine plastics, so that we all can unite and move forward to come up with solutions. Thank you so much for sharing your considerable insights and wonder with us. It was such a great conversation. I'm really thrilled to have had you on the show. Thank you for hosting me. It's been wonderful. Because I love you. Because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis, so I'd love your help with that. Because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for wardrobe crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my plans feel that this is a waste of time, I tell you Who is that? Hi, Puck Pass.